is the Roaring Elephant podcast for the 6th of April 2017. A podcast about the matches you do and the surrounding ecosystem for anybody working with or investigating big data. My name is Still Jon and here's my co-host Still Dave. Indeed, Still Dave is here uh, for the second day running. Yes, two podcasts in two days. We should do this more often. No, 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 no. Let's not, let's not go there. <laughs> I think if this happens any more often, uh, it's going to have to become a live streaming show of uh, thoughts and consciousness on a 24 by 7 basis, which I think personally would be very, very scary. And it would really make us lose our clean tag on iTunes, I think. <laughs> yes. <laughs> let's, not, let's not go on that. Let's not elaborate on that. Let's talk about this podcast. But before we do... You the raffle, the, yeah. the raffle, the raffle, the raffle. So we are in the second week uh, of uh, entries available for um, the opportunity to win a free pass to the San Jose DataWorks Summit. Uh, if you're interested, the way to apply um, in a very short way would be to retweet you know, some of our um, episode announcements on Twitter or you could go ahead and put your own promotion on Twitter or indeed any other platform that you like. Do a presentation. Just We just need to make sure that we have proof of it. So drop us an email with proof of uh, you talking about the Roaring Elephant and furthering the cause, uh, getting more, flock, more people flocking to uh, the podcast. Well put. And if you need to know more about the rules around the whole raffle thing, they're on the website. Just click on the raffle rules page for more information. Yep. That's pretty simple, actually. Just promote us a little bit, and we'll give you a raffle ticket. Indeed. Easy enough. Second thing, and last I'm going to mention this on the podcast, the whole turtles versus sharks race, so the whole discussion about do we move from a long podcast every two weeks to smaller podcasts every week? Up until this point, we've had a score, uh, I would say almost tied with turtles, zero votes, and sharks, everybody. <laughs> and I've actually used the the opportunity to meet people at the event to ask them this question again. What would you think? And at this point, everybody seems to be in favor of sharks. So this is not something going to happen next episode directly or this episode <laughs> in any case. Yep. But I think that we are going to move to a new format soonish. So if you feel that's totally wrong, you have one last chance to show your turtleliness. Make a word of that, I'd say. Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> so, yeah, it looks looking very much like we're, we're moving towards uh, smaller, more regular episodes. Uh, not that we do small terribly well, but we'll give it a shot. Um, so aiming here to, uh, you know, alternate between news episodes and content episodes, but uh, ideally churn something out every week. Uh, if that doesn't fit the way that you like to hear your roaring elephant goodness, um, you better know, let us know pretty quickly. Uh, it's a fairly easy change to make. Uh, it's a little bit more tricky for us to change back once we've gone down that road. Um, so, yeah, do let us know if you have any strong feelings, one way or the other. If you're a, yeah. a fan of the, the shark release method, um, new episode every week, let us know that. If you prefer turtle, one every two weeks, a little bit longer, a lot longer, um, <laughs> then, uh, then let us know that as well. But uh, with that... I think we're ready to uh, head into the uh, the main meat of the show. But first, we go into a little bit of music, which, according to Dave, is still the best part of the show. It really is. It really is. Back in a second. See you later. Keynotes were pretty, pretty awesome. Inspiring, inspiring, inspiring stuff. Yeah. Almost the last talks were very inspiring and keeps us thinking about stuff. Excellent. Now. <laughs> and makes us thinking to come next year again. Yeah. And welcome back. So this is uh, our second special edition podcast um, where we recap our day's experiences at the DataWorks Summit here in slightly cloudy but there's a little bit of blue sky munich um it's been a it's been a great uh it's been a great day too um i've had a, a really nice selection of sessions um and uh, we'll be talking about our experiences throughout so as usual 
chronological order, um, starts off with keynotes. Unfortunately, I missed most of the keynotes due to a, uh, a conflicting meeting, uh, but uh, my my good friend, pal and buddy, Yon <laughs> here, was uh, able to, AKA to pick up... the victim. Yeah. He actually likes being called the victim, if you ever meet him. Um, was was able to, uh, to to get his uh, his feedback on the uh, on the keynote. So, Jon, um, tell us tell us how it was. Um, I mean, it was a keynote. It was a second day keynote, so all of the big guns had appeared yesterday already, which is usually how these things go. So today was more of the uh, people that were sponsoring the event having their spotlights moments. So. I don't know, wow factor-wise, a bit less perhaps. Mm-hmm. Anyway, John Chrysler started out again, uh, just like yesterday, uh, reiterating a bit how yesterday was. Uh, there weren't any numbers made of, uh, announced about uh, visitor numbers or something like that, which I think they did last year, but I'm not entirely certain. That didn't happen. A uh, little of a slideshow of pictures about the party from yesterday, which we couldn't attend because we were doing a podcast. Uh, but apart from that, it moved on pretty quickly to the person from Dell EMC called Ross Porter, who had a nice donut shop analogy becoming uh, donuts coming data driven. And that's kind of came, became a red herring through all of the talks. Everybody <laughs> picked that up. So the data driven kind of donut conversation. Yeah. <laughs> it's a fun thing. So I'm wondering if I'm going to meet customers that are going to ask me how to do the data driven donut soon, but we'll see how that works. <laughs> But uh, he kind of iterated on the the, the known things, uh, which we have been talking about often enough, I think. What do you need to have a successful data analytics project? You need to have a clear use case. Yeah. I mean, he's right. Nothing more to say about that. And if you have a clear use case, do something with it. Don't just talk, talk and talk and talk and plan and plan. Just take the small use case and start doing something and build on what you've done. So basically, you have nothing to add. It's excellent advice. Yeah, I mean, it seems to be basically re- reiterating exactly the same things that we've been saying on a regular basis, which I guess is is good that 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 message is all lining up. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Next person on uh, on the stage was Carlo Vaiti from uh, HPE, uh, who had a interesting slideshow because his first slide was slide number twenty five. So it's funny when you see these little things, and he was talking about the trends in big data. Uh, which was, again, more of a reiteration of things that, if you've been in this world for a while, won't be any kind of news to you. Uh, there was some push on the open source community driving innovation being important. So the same thing that IBM told, uh, talked about yesterday, being open is important, open source is important, came in here as well very, very heavily. Uh, Hadoop as a service came in there, real-time being important. He actually also mentions the f- uh, analytics at on the edge uh, phenomenon we're seeing more and more, where the analytics where the analytics used to be in your data center, in your Hadoop cluster, where now it becomes too much to get all the data in. You have to do some analytics on the edge nodes where Minify and NiFi actually come into play as well, of course. And the big thing for HPE apparently is that they have discovered the asymmetry of Hadoop, where your compute and storage uh, workloads can land on different parts of your cluster. And in the end, uh, it was a bit of a commercial promo for something HPE is calling the Elastic Platform for Big Data, which is probably their offering to make this asymmetric Hadoop cluster, which basically is storage and compute separated. Yeah, and having uh, non-homogeneous uh, compute clusters where you have the yeah, based on the memory-heavy nodes and the uh, Hive on the storage-heavy nodes, for example, to make that easier yeah. as an enterprise solution. It is interesting um, to see. It. it seemed like a lot of the keynotes were maybe not emphasizing, but at least touching on community, open source. Yeah. It seemed to be a theme sort of running throughout. Well, of course, being at a Hadoop Summit, DataWorks Summit, yeah, yeah. it's the open source summit in the Hadoop world, I, I would say. Yeah. So it's kind of hard not to do that if you want to keep uh, anybody, any friends in the, in the audience, <laughs> I would say. Anyway, after the HPE presentation, we went to a panel again. Mm-hmm. This, kind of, this time moderated by Raj Verma, which is the new president for Hortonworks. Yeah, you uh, COO and VP mm-hmm. of Sales, I think. COO, I think. Yeah, Chief Operating Officer. Yes, that was it. And here were three guests. We had Nadim Gulzar from Danske Bank. We had Zog Gibbons from Walgreens slash Boots Alliance. And Eddie Edwards from Centrica. Mm-hmm. Um, panel was pretty 
yeah, I wouldn't say scripted, but it was not nothing really new was extolled there either. Uh, first, uh, there were, every person was asked, "What have you done to get into this big data thing?" So they all kind of talked about their first use case they landed on the big data platforms. Mm -hmm. The one that struck me. Not the nicest one I found was the one from Danske Bank where they had a machine learning algorithm in place to kind of make the refilling of the ATMs with cash uh -huh. less predictable. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah, if yeah. you refill them every day at 9 a.m., it kind of sends a message to the less yeah. savory crowd. Yeah. So basically, that was a nice, it's a nice use case to think about. Uh, Center guy was talking about uh, telco boxes with uh, batteries, and again, the that, the Center the person yeah. from yesterday also talked about this battery energy marketplace, virtual power, virtual plant power plants. Yeah. Uh, Walgreens had a uh, yeah, Walgreens being a big supermarket uh, chain, of course, and Boots uh, the airlines was talking about loyalty transactions and international expansion, needing scalable uh, solutions and stuff like that. And store store layouts, things like that. If I remember, uh, yeah, store layouts as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, pretty much a basic. Yeah, uh, standard market. Uh, I'd call retail. Retail kind of use, use cases. cases yeah. yeah. Then the question was asked: uh, Why did they, when they started in the open source in, in the in the big data world, why did it, why did they choose for open source solutions instead of going for a commercial off the shelf? I would call it black box solution. Mm -hmm. And there were some interesting answers there. Danske Bank actually came back with, uh, well, there was no choice because we looked at the commercial vendors who claimed to have something, but in the end, when we looked at it, they just didn't have it. It didn't yeah. work or it wasn't finished or they just, they just said they had something which they didn't have. So they went to open source and they found open source to be very amenable to them, very easy to work with. Uh, not easy and it's very simple, but easy because people are resp responding, reacting. It's a problem community. It's once again, whole open source thing. Um, the Walgreens person actually took a different answer there. The, there was also a bit of a side question of how easy was it to get this all working and any lessons learned for the people that are trying to start with this today. And the Walgreens guy can explain that it wasn't easy in it's just plug and play and it flip a switch and that's it. <laughs> it was a hard time to work with this and they really needed to work with their partners to make this work. Even though Walgreens in the US had been working with Hadoop for three years already, yeah, the the boot side, the, the British partner of the the, the conglomerate, if I can call it that, they still had a hard time to make this work on their own. So they needed uh, partners to help them. And he was talking. He told a story about how they set up a hackathon at Hortonworks and things that were bugging them for weeks kind of got solved in a day just by having the right talent in the room and focusing on the problems. Yeah. Again, that whole community-driven aspect of it. I'm not sure. Did you, did you see much of the panel? Uh, bits and pieces of it. Mm. Um, I think I saw a little bit towards the end of it. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, as I say, I think it was, it was interesting, but, um, it would have been nice if, if some of the, uh, some of the things have been a little clearer, perhaps. Yeah. It stayed very high level, all of it. It was, yeah. But again, it's a keynote. Yeah. Okay, following on the panel, we had Mike Merritt Holmes from Teradata doing a, what I can, I can only call a marketing promo for Kylo. Uh, okay, yeah. Which is good, I guess. I mean, Kylo, it's a new product. I didn't know much about it either. I've been talking to the guys on the floor here to get more information on it. Mm -hmm. Looks like a nice product, but not something I would expect in a keynote, to be honest. Mm. So I'm not going to talk about this here. If, you have gone, if we have gone to talk about Kylo, I've approached the guys that want to be on the podcast, so maybe we'll have someone from Teradata nice. explaining it. Yeah. That would be the ideal way, because I don't know enough about Kylo. And having 10 minutes to do this kind of a promo spot just gave you the high end. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a product that solves everything. Fantastic. We can go home then. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to skip over that one. And then we came at the end already of the uh, yeah of the keynote with the the luminary for today, which was Dr. Rand Hindi from Snips, mm -hmm. who was less of a, a visionary uh, looking at the future and predicting dire things to happen like the one from yesterday, mm -hmm. but more looking at a more pragmatic view on AI and how AI can possibly make our lives better. His main idea, if I call it correctly, is that. At this point in time, humans are forced to learn how machines work. 
And whenever you have a new kind of machine, you have to really relearn how that machine works. And he was giving the example of a rental car. Every mm-hmm. time you get a new rental car, you spend about 10 minutes in the car finding all the switches and whatever. And when the, the, the Where, where's the fuel flat? Where's the indicators? Yeah. Where the windscreen wipers? All that kind Light. of thing. Yeah. And that should not happen, especially because the amount of devices and machines we're going to be working with or encountering in our lives in the future, because of the whole digitization of the environment, of course, is going to get more and more and more and more. So at a certain point, humans just can't cope anymore with learning all these different systems. So we're going to need something that make systems know how to work with us. And that's where AI comes in. So through AI, machine learning, deep learning, those machines or devices will come smart enough that they kind of, well, you just talk to them. But like, uh, it's not, not, he didn't talk about this, but it's like when I look at Star Trek, when you just talk to the ship and the ship immediately knows context and knows what you mean, even mm-hmm. if you didn't tell about anything. That's kind of the, the idea he was talking about where AI would make something like that possible. You just step into your car and you need to make your blinker to the left. Just tell the car, blink to the left. <laughs> I don't have to look where the switch is. Yeah. Which makes it safer, of course. So he went on about that a bit. He also touched on the fact that all of these devices like the, uh, the Alexa and, uh, the, the smart yeah. speaker stuff, yeah. uh, always on privacy issues. So he also talked a little bit about this whole uh, analytics on the edge, where why do we need to send this to the cloud where you don't know what happens with that data? Because whatever you're talking about, that is data that can be analyzed and is being analyzed, to be honest, with that. Today, the hardware the evolution is so far advanced that all of this smart uh, linguistic analytics and intonation and context and whatever, you, you can actually do this on the Raspberry Pi. So it doesn't have to go to the cloud anymore. You don't need that much data to train the models. Yes, you need a lot of data. Mm. But to use the model once it's been trained, that could just happen on the device itself, which would be good in a whole bunch of ways. Privacy, obviously, but also less bandwidth usage, less power usage. Yeah, so I think there are two sides to this, of course, mm-hmm. because the so there is, obviously, there's, there's Alexa, there's Echo, there's Cortana. There's a variety of different... What I would call virtual butler systems, um, <laughs> but um, there's another one called I think, and I, I will check and see if I can remember. There's one called I think it's Mycroft, and the the idea behind Mycroft is exactly the same sort of concepts as all of the the other tools I've just mentioned, but uh, entirely uh, able to run in a disconnected environment. Mm. Uh, and yeah, all all the same kind of intelligence, but also significantly more privacy. And the so I th- I think it was a it was it was a I don't know if it was a Kickstarter. It was a crowdfund of of some description, um, kind of mid last year I think. Uh, and you know, successfully funded. I I believe it's it's continuing on. I didn't actually back it myself, but I know a couple of people that I have, and. The the thing about this is it was designed by people that are very passionate about the power of, of AI and all that sort of thing, but also very passionate about privacy. Mm-hmm. And, of course, when we're talking about things like uh, uh, Cortana and uh, you know, Alexa and Echo and all these other things, um, they're being provided by organizations, not you know just for the goodness of their heart. It's because it's part of a... Uh, you know, essentially, it's part of a revenue stream for them. It's a business strategy. It's a business strategy, exactly right. So, it, it's it's all very well saying that you can you can do all of this kind of analytics on you know a Raspberry Pi. You mm-hmm. don't need to send it to the cloud. But, but a lot why of the, would you want to? Well, why would you want to exactly? But a lot of these organisations that are behind this, let's call it the first generation of these. Uh, you know, AI mm-hmm. butlers mm-hmm. Um, are essentially, you know, you're you're subsidizing the hardware cost by by providing the you know a data source for them to continue to tinker yeah. on later. And this business model has existed for years already because that's Google Maps as well, right? Exactly. I mean, if the 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 core of this is always um, if you're getting something for free, it uh, turns out you're actually the product. And not the you're the thing being sold, yeah, yeah, not yeah. the customer. Yeah. So, uh, uh, well, actually, he did have an answer to the why would you, <laughs> and that's GDPR. Yeah. Because GDPR uh, is actually intended to be privacy by design, and having a Alexa speaker which by design uses the cloud is not privacy by design. So I'm not entirely certain, and pretty much it's not going to happen, that legislation will be passed that makes things like Alexa illegal. 
But I don't think it's ever going to get that far. But if you would take GDPR to its actual extreme mm-hmm. interpretation, it would actually mean that something like Alexa could not be made anymore once GDPR becomes active. I mean, it was it was only what a week ago, two weeks ago, possibly that uh, um, Amazon were being subpoenaed for the recording mm-hmm. logs from one of their devices yep. that may or may not have witnessed in inverted commas a murder. You know, and. That's th- these kind of things are going to become these kind yeah. of situations will become more and more common. And that's the last part of his uh, his, his talk was uh, <laughs> how can you solve this yeah. by encrypting everything you store in the cloud? Yeah. The problem then is, of course, once it's encrypted in the cloud, you can't do anything anymore in the cloud. And apparently, there's something new, and he was calling it the next future tech. You have to keep your eye on. It's still in uh, full development today, so it doesn't it works, but it's very slow. And it's called the homomorphic encryption. Mm-hmm. which is a way where you can actually have your encrypted stuff in the cloud and still be able to do your analytics or transformations in a, in, a, in a normal way on the encrypted data without actually knowing what the data is and being able to send the encrypted results of that analytics back to the client to make it actually give me my, I don't know, movie recommendations. He didn't went into any kind of detail because, as he said, it's new tech, it's something it's being built, it actually works, but it's hugely expensive and slow. Mm-hmm. But apparently homomorphic encryption might be the thing that... Saves us. Uh, well, not saves us because <laughs> I can live without Alexa. I don't have Alexa or anything like that today, so I can live without She'll it. be very upset with you. Um, well, I think <laughs> she's got so many suitors, I don't think she's going to miss me. <laughs> Uh, besides, I'm going to have to go with Cortana anyway. So, um, But, uh, yeah, the whole privacy issue might be skirted by having your stuff encrypted in the clouds, still allowing the companies to do their data mining on, let's not call it encrypted, but at least anonymized data at that point. Because I think that's how you have to look at it then. Again, we're not, yeah, not about yeah, I, mean, I, I would imagine it, it's something along those lines. I, I will definitely take a look because it sounds curious. And basically that was the end of the keynotes. Mm-hmm. So all in all, it was a bit more heavy on the promotion done by the, the, the sponsoring partners. And I guess if they sponsor this event, they should have that little moment in spotlight. Yep. Uh, ending with the talk about AI. Fantastic. So that was it for the keynotes. So, so we're moving on to the sessions now. Indeed. A quick break. And then um, it was into the sessions. And uh, so my first session was uh, the weirdly and wonderfully named, uh, and I won't give you the entire title because we fill up the uh, entire podcast with it, but uh, the shortened version was Bridal Your Flying Islands and Castles in the Sky, um, which was with uh, a session with uh, two Hornworks guys, Jeff Spazzetti and uh, Shukath Venkat. And um, essentially the core of this was around um, how you deal with um, certain shared services in a cloud ephemeral cluster world. And the core of this was really um, talking about shared services and maintaining shared services that are continuously up and running, despite the fact that you may be starting up or shutting down ephemeral clouds on the side. So the the Hortonworks has an offering called something called HDC, Hortonworks Data Cloud, runs on AWS, and this is the sort of the next generation of that that is coming up very, very soon, where essentially you have a a Ranger instance, a a Knox instance, uh, an Atlas instance, um, you know, a Hive Metastore instance that are essentially consistently up. And then as you start up an ephemeral cluster that's talking back to S3, all of that uh, that metadata about your environment is then already present there. So all your security policies are already applied. All of your um, uh, lineage of your data that's in, in existence already is there. Then you go ahead and process a whole bunch of stuff. You add more lineage. You uh, add more data. You maybe change or modify security policies or whatever it is. When you're done processing, you terminate your instance or your, your uh, ephemeral um uh, Hadoop cluster effectively, and then uh, all of the, those services continue running in the background until you start your next ephemeral cluster. And of course, you can have multiple ephemeral clusters talking to this shared service backend. Um, so it was it, it was interesting. I knew I knew a bit about some of this that was coming along, uh, but it was the first time I'd actually seen uh, everything working sort of end to end. And they did actually have several environments talking back to these uh, shared services. 
they also had um, a few guidelines uh, for if you're looking to use uh, shared services in this kind of world. And to me, this was the sort of the more interesting part of it. Um, and their guidelines were things like uh, if you if you start ephemeral, then stay ephemeral. Uh, the whole point of ephemeral clusters is you're going to shut them down. They're going to go away. So don't store data on uh, local HDFS. Um, you know, don't create local tables on on the local HDFS. Make sure you're doing everything uh, on on the uh, background S3. Um, so on in HDC, the Hive warehouse is set up to be uh, on S3 for the data lake. Um, so you'd create tables in this location instead of the individual kind of S3 buckets directly. Mm. Um, so you want to, again, you want to abstract away you know, the things that are happening in the background as much as possible. Um, so some of the other things, you know, make sure you're creating policies um, that match, uh, you know, create security policies that match your, um, your usage uh, and your usage over a period of time. So not just point, uh, point policies. And um, and then really making sure that uh, if you're using uh, Hive uh, external tables that are outside this uh, this warehouse, or if they're ingested through some sort of other path, again, make sure you're you're doing this in a, a sensible way for an ephemeral cluster world. So, yeah, interesting, very interesting to see it all actually running. Um, and uh, I think it, it's. I don't have many organizations that I work with at the moment that are in that really, truly ephemeral mm-hmm. workload uh, universe yet. But I, I'm, I'm certain that it's only a matter of time, at least where you know, you're going to have a variety of different size. And you know, we've talked about the, not, not fragmentation of Hadoop, but the sort of... Um, the sort of specifics of Hadoop moving forward where maybe you will just have a Spark cluster. Yeah. Maybe you will just have... Not having uh, the monolithical Hadoop exactly. enforced upon you, like just like Linux kernel, okay, from the monolithical kernel to yeah. more of a dynamic kernel where you use the yeah. parts you need for whatever you have there. Exactly. And and this, this, this well could be one of the things that actually makes that really, truly possible. So what was your, your first uh, session of the day? Uh, my first session today was uh, HBase 2.0. I'm going to take my phone with the color Meet Apache HBase 2.0. That's mm-hmm. the complete title. And uh, kind of a mixed success, I must admit, because the summary kind of talked about is going to explain the new things in HBase 2.0, which isn't released yet. The planning was it would be going to be released by the end of last year, but they've missed that. Now they're aiming for the end of this year. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure exactly what happened there, but... It's coming soon. He was. He said end of this year, but probably much sooner. So we'll see. But the thing was that the person was a the, the speaker was a very smart guy. No, no issue there at all. He went very deep on the internal implementation of HBase itself, mm-hmm. where I was hoping more of a okay. What are the new functionalities in HBase though, which I can use in various new different fun ways? Mm-hmm. So it's a bit of a mismatch between my expectations and what was talked about. Also, part of it I didn't really follow in depth because there's a lot of talk about the advantages of doing things off-heap versus on-heap. I do know what a heap is, but I'm not a programmer, so that kind of went above my head. And that was pretty much the story for the whole thing, to be honest. Now, if you are a programmer and you are using HBase, this will definitely be a good session for you. You will get in-depth plumbing of HBase explained to you. Um but there's not much. I can just repeat everything you had on the slides, but that doesn't really make a good podcast, <laughs> I think. So I'm not going to do that. Um, just checking if there's anything specific I wanted to note. Not really. It will. Uh, HBase is going to get um, a backup and restore functionality, mm-hmm. which at this moment in time is pretty hard to do. Yeah. So you're going to have incremental and full backups, where the full backups are based on snapshots and the incremental are based on the right ahead logs. Nice. So nice. basically, if you want to restore it, then you take back your last full, of course, with the snapshot restore, and then rerun the the walls to make it up to the point where you did the backup. Mm-hmm. So apparently, that's something I've been asked by my customers: okay, how do I back this thing up? And you're actually going to have a session about that. At Indeed, the end of the yeah, day. more about that later. So that was uh, something I that really pinged for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, for apart from that, is more about things getting faster and better and re rebuilt to have 
problem solved, basically that. Oh, and second thing I had noted was uh, extra quotas. You have quotas at the moment for the amount of tables per namespace. Uh, sorry, amount of tables and the amount of interactions you can do. Mm-hmm. But you don't have a Discord at the moment. And that's coming. So you'll be able to say per table or per namespace, but not per user, how big this table can grow. Mm-hmm. But it will not give you, if I understood correctly, a permission denied if you grow bigger than that. And you know why? Why? Well, when you your disk fills up, what do you have to do then? Delete stuff. Mm-hmm. In HBase, if you delete stuff, you actually write stuff. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> so that was a... So they're using something, it's called a violation it raises, a violation exception or a denied exception. That's, that's mm-hmm. a fun thing. Uh, he ended the talk with a quick uh, look at Phoenix 5.0, which is still being developed as well. So Phoenix mm-hmm. and HBase, the Phoenix being the SQL front-end on front, front of uh, HBase, which gives you SQL semantics. You can push to a NoSQL store. If you want to do that, more power to you. Uh, it didn't say much, only that uh, Phoenix 5.0 will be released in the same, the same time frame where HBase 2.0 is going to happen. It's going to use CalSite as well. CalSite is popping up all over the place these days. Yeah. We're really going to have to look into that. And uh, Phoenix will get SQL 92 support. Nice. He didn't really say full <laughs> SQL 92 support. I'm not entirely sure. Some. <laughs> but uh, apparently they are completing the, the feature set there as well. So again, sadly, not exactly what I expected, but a uh, very good talk. And if you're a developer and really want to get the nitty-gritty in the plumbing, I really advise you to look it up on YouTube. Fantastic. Over to you. So my next session was uh, Solving Cybersecurity at Scale uh, with Simon Ball. Um, obviously, uh, those of you that have been listening for a while uh, now, a lot of my focus at the moment is very much on cybersecurity and Apache Metron. Um, this was essentially the uh, the business track talk about Apache Metron. So, you know, um, very high level, uh, but really, uh, really well done, very engaging as always. And uh, the slightly amusing thing was uh, when asked... Uh, when the audience was asked how many people here are here from a you know a cybersecurity standpoint mm-hmm. or a, um, a business standpoint, there was you know a small handful of uh, hands went up. And uh, okay, so how many people are here from a Hadoop kind of uh, data wrangling engineering perspective? You know, ninety percent of the hands <laughs> went up. So bit of a mismatch there. <laughs> a little bit. So Simon did uh, occasionally dip more into the the technical uh, pieces than uh, than perhaps if it had stayed as a pure business session. Um, but yeah, just really really nice session. Gave a really good overview. If you want to understand why cybersecurity, um, I would absolutely recommend checking this session out. Uh, and more more importantly, why why cybersecurity on big data? Um, the one of the interesting things is that really, uh, you know, Metron didn't really come into the conversation until the last, you know, probably five minutes or so. Really, um, it, so it was all kind of building up. You know, why would you do all this? What are the threats that are actually prevalent in you know today's okay. sort of space? So. Um, some of the challenges to 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 socks uh, today, so uh, security operation centers. Um, you know, lots of shiny new tools out there, but shiny new tools, uh, you know, almost in some cases can actually make the problem worse because all you're then doing is adding more silos, adding yet another collection framework, so on and so forth. Um, more is always better, right? This is big data. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not always the case. Anyway, so. Really good session. Um, I'd say thoroughly recommend it if you're interested in Metron, uh, if you're interested in their sort of high-level view on what cybersecurity is and why it matters and why you should be uh, thinking about it or talking to your uh, chief information security officer about. Um, this is definitely the session for you. Anyway, that was so that was my session. Thoroughly enjoyable. Um, how about you? Uh, well, my, my next session was a bit of a uh, follow-on on my first session on the uh, HBase 2.0, which was a bit too deep for me. Mm-hmm. The next session was HBase in practice. 
Okay. It's given by a very nice guy called Lars George, who has a problem with his beard because he's writing a second book, and as long as the book's not finished, he can't shave his beard off, apparently. So <laughs> beard's getting longer all the time. That's his excuse. <laughs> so okay. Good luck with the book, man. <laughs> but he gave a, gave a very nice talk, actually, a very nice talk on HBase and how you should look at using this because there's still a lot of questions about this whole no SQL how can I do this because my SQL is either too expensive or it's not fast enough so let's just make it no SQL and now all my problems are solved right that's a conversation I have quite often lately recently for some reason mm -hmm. and this is actually a very nice session and the moment his slides come on on, on, the, on the web I'm pretty much going to steal if not the slides themselves at least the way he did it because he was able to make it in a way that started with things that everybody knows being the simple Excel spreadsheet which my first impression was Excel spreadsheets that's the that's the typical SQL environment row column store <laughs> <laughs> but it was basically a start with something known and now this is how HBase so you know this but HBase is like this and this is different like that and that way he went to the point where he talked about row keys column families columns region servers and uh, the whole thing okay. logically really really logically came from that Excel spreadsheet onto the complex environment that HBase does mm -hmm. and explained why some things might not work as you would intend and I'm not going to go through the whole uh, story because it's HBase it's not entirely new but um, it's a very nice summary of the whole things. A couple of things I want to mention is that uh, HBase 2.0 now has a context for Spark. So you can do direct HBase querying from Spark now, which is nice. Uh, there was something, an acronym on the screen, which I'm going to re retain and reuse, called DDI. Denormalization, Duplication and Intelligent Keys. That's basically mm -hmm. how a NoSQL key value store needs to be set up. You denormalize everything. Yep. You probably duplicate a lot because yep. you don't have atomic uh, querying. Yep, yep. And intelligent keys, meaning that basically HBase is a key value store yep. where your key contains all your information. Everything you're going to query about is going to be in that key and your value is going to be 0, 1, 10 or 15 or some of true or false. Very yep. simple. So that's DDI. It's a nice uh, thing. Also, the motto for HBase, designed for reads. Mm -hmm. If you're going to choose your row key, choose row key for reads, because basically reads are going to be latency sensitive. You want to have a query reply as fast as possible. Yeah. But writing stuff probably isn't that big of an issue. And if it is, you just Good scale point. it out further, yeah. make it faster that way. But reading it, you can scale out as much as you want to. You will get it. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. Uh, also talked about uh, rows not being too large. If rows get too big, then HBase squeeze class to suffer. So just simply cut your long rows into sets into three trip, uh, tri thirds of the row and just uh, take your row key and add a one, two, and a three. And instead of doing a query for one row, do a scan on the row key without that last thing. You'll get three rows back. Okay. <laughs> so so really simple. nice sort of application yeah. design hints there. Yeah, yeah. So very nice talk. I, re I learned a lot, which I was also expecting. <laughs> mm -hmm. But uh, I really enjoyed it. It was a very nice talk, very nicely given. And uh, if, you haven't, if you weren't there... Go to YouTube tomorrow when it comes on, and uh, I say read the man's book because if he can talk, uh, he, he explains it like this by his talking. I think the book must be pretty good too. Yeah, uh, and for those that uh, that are curious, I did inquire, and apparently it should be about uh, seven to ten days max uh, before the uh, the YouTube okay. uh, clips start to come online. That's so fast. Uh, yeah, I mean the. The European summit last year was actually pretty quick as well. Mm -hmm. So, hats off to the uh, the folk doing that uh, uh, in the in the European region. Definitely. Anyway, what was your next session? Okay, more Metron, yay! So this time it was uh, achieving real time ingestion and analysis or analytics of security events through Kafka and Metron. And this was uh, a session by uh, Saga Gatwa who uh, I've met before, a uh, great guy, um, working at Capital One. Um, so he's been in their sort of uh, uh, data engineering team for a couple of years. And the nice thing about this is that it, you know, they are a customer using this in production today at very, very significant scale. They've actually been using it for around about two years now. Um, and, you know, just some of the, the things that they were talking about, they're currently kind of ingesting and streaming about seven terabytes of data a day through this. Um, and, you know, some some of the reasons that they, they went down this route are exactly what you'd expect. You know, data breaches are 
horrendously expensive things no. if you if you have one. Um, you know, protection of their brand was uh, very much seen as key. You know, they started off from a, a, a sort of a time when they were looking at you know thirty plus point security solutions, like the majority of, of uh, socks have. You know, walls and walls of different screens. Um, in fact, he, he coined a, a really nice phrase that I hadn't seen before called swivel chairing, which is uh, where rather than having a, a single uh, a single platform, a single screen or a set of screens in front of you that you'd follow, you have a, a set of screens wrapped around you and you're swiveling your chair <laughs> uh, between a set of different you know keyboards and monitors, depending on what you're doing at any point in time. Um, you know, and previously they'd been far more forensic you know oh god we you know we did have some ha- something happen or we think we had something happen x number of days weeks months ago um we better go and find out what happened mm-hmm. versus proactive which of course is what you need to be especially as things have evolved um and you know their previous system very static rule-based you know and all the pain and misery of rule management uh, that comes along with that so they then went on through their their architecture their infrastructure and the interesting thing is that they've essentially um they've taken the the core metron um framework and they've continued to extend it based on some of their specific needs and requirements um so one of them which i thought was quite interesting is um metron has a um, model as a service uh, kind of component to it where for certain things that you think you may want to uh, interrogate further you can fire those into a, a machine learning model and that model can be anything you like as long as it a runs in a yarn container and uh, b can accept a, a rest interface and uh, so the they actually stripped that out and they put in their own custom developed model as a service platform because it was actually part of a a larger initiative across the whole bank that they wanted a model as a service platform for the whole organization. Um, so they, they, they were able to, you know, swap this in and actually then went into some of the things that they'd done on that model as a service platform. So, um, one of the uh, easiest things to do in that space is, uh, um, uh, DGA detection. So, uh, domain name, uh, generation algorithms. So if you've got, uh, malware that gets ingested into your system somehow uh, usually it uses some form of beaconing or domain name generation to go and reach out to its command and control servers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not a www.google.com. It's a abc123hj.tw or whatever it might be. Um, sorry, Taiwan. Um, and uh, so, you know, how do you, how do you detect those? And it turns out, Surprisingly enough, uh, or unsurprisingly enough, uh, machine learning is a great way to detect yeah. that. Um, and he actually went through the, you know, how they built that DGA algorithm. If you're interested in that side of thing, thoroughly recommend it. And uh, you know, they've they've since built uh, essentially a, a custom UI on top of that. And they, you know, she showed some some uh, some screen caps of the UI that they built around it. Uh, and they're still very active in the in the Metron community. They've got. Uh, people uh, committing code upstream. Um, they're very heavy users of um, things like the uh, the prof- uh, not profiler the um, uh, sort of the, essentially the ingest framework and the enrichment framework. And uh, you know the the challenges that he uh, he really echoed were um, it, it's less about uh, the technical side of things, but there's a lot of things that they had to do around. Uh, around the operational um, management of things, so uptime, making sure they had clear metrics for this streaming re- real-time environment that was critical for them, you know, having a, a proper you know support model for it, um, organizational and cultural changes, uh, dealing with different regulations. They're sort of um, running a lot of this in cloud environments, which it turns out, surprisingly enough, is what you know at least fifty percent of Metron people seem to be doing stuff in in mm. cloud rather than on prem. Um, yeah, it makes sense because it's more of a streaming yeah. uh, in environment. So storage and stuff, you don't really care that much about. Yeah. It's still important, definitely, definitely for your logging, whatever. Yeah, but the streaming is the important thing, right? Yeah, yeah, and then. Um, actually talked a little bit about uh, so this this project was actually initially called something uh, Purple Rain <laughs> was its initial code name uh, and they've actually got a new uh, yeah. new project called Project Deep Sea is the next generation of this so you know 
bringing it to a more of a, a loosely coupled streaming solution. This is something they think that they can they can reuse this architecture again and again throughout the bank, not just for cybersecurity, but for fraud analytics and you know many many other different use cases. Which is unsurprisingly not the first time we've heard that. Um, and you know, developing it into a, a full a full enterprise wide solution. So. Yeah, great session. Really enjoyed it. Again, if you're interested in cybersecurity, thoroughly recommend you check it out. Back to you. Back to me, and we're firmly in the afternoon now. Yeah, we are indeed. And my first session of the afternoon was uh, row column level security in SQL, or SQL as lead people call it, for Apache Spark. Mm-hmm. And it actually turned out to be a talk about LLAP. Okay. Ah, yes. See, Mr. Hortonworks, he knows what I'm talking about. (laughs) Apparently, the, okay, first the guy started with, uh, why do you need security? Just uh, setting the scene a little bit, Mm -hmm. nothing new there. Uh, there were stated goals. You want to have SQL security in Spark without you having to rewrite your code. That's a good thing. Yep. So making it transparent, making it uh, work predictably across all shells and Zeppelin and Jupyter front ends you might be using. So Mm -hmm. make it work. And apparently the things you need to have security in uh, Spark uh, for SQL, and don't forget this for SQL thing, because it's particularly if you're using SQL semantics to access your data yep. in Spark. Yep. Things you need are Kerberos. Yep. Who the thunk? Hadoop. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so he started basic. Ranger. Huh? How, how, come he, how come he said Kerberos first before Hadoop? I don't know. After <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, you need uh, Hive with LLAP, of course, mm-hmm. and then you need a extra library called Spark-LLAP. Okay. And the thing is, and at the moment it's not in GI yet, it's going to be in uh, Tech Preview in HTTP 2.6 mm-hmm. with the idea of becoming uh, GA in the next release, he called it. There was a question from the audience, is that the next patch release or the next release? So 2.6.1 or 2.7? <laughs> he didn't uh, have an answer for that, so but should be soonish. And the idea is that at this moment, you have to do a Spark submit, for example, and load that uh, Spark LAP library with it. So mm-hmm. it knows this library. And then instead of you can make a, instead of making a Spark uh, context, you make an L, a Spark LAP context. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that when this becomes GA, the Spark LAP context will be the default Spark context right. and you won't be able to surpass it anymore. And from that point on, if you're using that context to access your uh, Hive tables, it will be forced to use LLAP libraries. And LLAP, the whole caching mechanism, is actually using the ranger policies, whatever, before it gives you back the information. Right. So by forcing it to go through LLAP, they're just leveraging a Hive Server 2 and LLAP functionality that already exists in that product Mm -hmm. to enforce your security. Nice. So it's a very elegant solution. It Mm -hmm. just works. And they basically don't have to do that much themselves, except making sure that there's no uh, ways around using this context, of course. And he had a, a little demo there that just uh, showed that it worked and uh, changed the ranger policy, went into Spark, and he actually did masking and uh, filtering uh, rules in Ranger. Oh, nice. So and he just did a select first, and you uh, could see all the males he had in his uh, database. Went to Ranger, flipped the filter from only show the females, and did the same query again, and only show the females. Oh. So it went uh, very nice. So, yeah, apart from that, not that much to talk about for this session because it's still a work in progress, but it mm-hmm. did look, look very seamless, fast, just worked. Nice. And uh, a bit of luck, it just happens. You will. There was a question from the audience, uh, what happens if I uh, contact my administrator and tell them to disable LIP? Can I now just query everything? Uh, yes, only you will query and L results will be nothing. Because once that Spark context uses the LAP context, <laughs> it will need to talk to LAP. If it can't LAP, it will come back with, I don't have anything for you. <laughs> <laughs> that, well, that is, that is the most That's secure fine. option. That's fine. So at this point, you still need to do a little bit of clunking yourself, having to make sure that the library is in there and using the right LAP-Spark or Spark-LAP context. Mm-hmm. You have to create a, a specific context. But the idea being, once it's this GA, that that's the default one, and it just works. Nice. So... Back to you. All right. So my next session description is going to be very, very short. And it's it's not because it was a bad session per se. Um, so my next one was uh, Kafka Best Practices by Manikumar Reddy. And really all I'm going to say is 
This guy obviously knew knew everything and anything you could ever possibly want to know about Kafka. I mean, went through absolutely everything. Um, but the reality was uh, he was essentially just reading, you know, he was, he was basically reading slides. Mm. Um, it, it would have made a great book. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and, and he was also, you know, blasting through the slides very quickly yeah, yeah, yeah. and still had to skip a whole bunch of slides. Still didn't get to the end, um, which is a shame because there was some other stuff that I really would have liked to have seen. So, uh, I would say a great one to not necessarily a great one to catch up on. Um, one of the things that I love these kind of best practice sessions, but for me, uh, because I'm not that deep kind mm-hmm. of propeller head kind of guy, the things that I like, the things that make this real are examples of, oh, this is what will happen if you don't yep, do yep, that. Yep, 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 yep. I've seen, you know, you know, short story. This is the, you know, these are things that happen. Um, because that's what no customer just wants to know. Set that to point seven five, and you'll be all right. People want to know why and what happens if you don't, and things like that. Mm. And this was just—it wasn't quite just a list of parameters that you need to set everything to, and you'll be fine. But it was very close to that. So I would say, hopefully, the slides um, are the full slides of everything, not just the uh, the summary that he he actually was able to present. And uh, I would say that it would make a very, very good uh, reference guide if you're looking for Kafka best practices, Kafka deployment, Kafka tuning, anything and everything to do with Kafka. This is the session. Anyway, back to you. Back to me. So for this one, I went to Mool, automated log analysis using data science and machine learning. It's not exactly true because you tried to get into a session, but they would not admit you, would they? No, because you were in there before me and you said, don't let that guy in, right? <laughs> I did, and it worked. Yay me. Anyway, this was a practical session about a couple of guys from Hortonworks that were explaining. And actually, the, it was more interesting to what they explained, what they were doing in their daily lives, than the actual Mool solution mm-hmm. they were presenting. Because these guys were responsible of uh, looking at the test results of the integration testing, I would call it, when a new Hadoop HDP distribution gets built and all these different versions need to work together. Uh-huh. And then they have, uh, he was calling it several thousands of unit tests. I'm calling it unit tests. He didn't, but tests run against this uh, conglomerate of components, which hopefully works together. And the issue here is that if you're doing tests on, for instance, Hive mm-hmm. and something is wrong, you will get a exception in your log file and you can take this exception and say I'll tell Mr. Hive you have a bug please post to Jira and do something about it mm-hmm. but what if that Hive exception is actually a consequence of your HDFS HDFS mm-hmm. that HDFS guy is also going to get an error on his test and he'll also start working on that bug in the same <laughs> duplication of bugs duplication of yeah, efforts yeah. so what these guys were trying to figure out is how can we build something automated using machine learning so we don't have any manual triage going on anymore because that just doesn't scale anymore. We're having we're adding comp- we have now twenty five, twenty eight components in the HTTP. We're adding three components per year. Complexity exponential. This just doesn't scale anymore on human level. So we need to automate this thing. And so he talked about what kind of uh, approach they took to make this manageable, where they now have a system more or less automated that first deduplicates, make sure that only the actual component that has the bug gets the bug report and has a full closed loop to actually making the Jira, making the the thing uh, happen. And that was a nice talk. Nice uh, visualization for you. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's internal. You should look those guys up because it had a nice uh, dashboard where you could actually see this is the root cause analysis. This is what actually what they were doing, getting the root cause yeah, analysis. Yeah. So this is root cause analysis with all, all dots around it with the, all the reported uh, errors these 500 nice. or for this one so nice. from a the example he gave you had a, about thousands of error reports which were shrunk down to about 17 fantastic <laughs> now that is that's ml at work yeah and you could see in the audience you had two kinds of people there you had the kind of people who were not into root cause analysis but more in machine learning who weren't that interested mm-hmm. and you had the other kind of people who were 
really apparently engaged in having complex systems running under them and they need to monitor this and yeah, running yeah, into yeah. this exact kind of problem, maybe yeah. not with integration testing. Oh yeah, integration testing for another level perhaps, who are really looking at, oh, this is an interesting thing. This this can automate things and just make my people, my expensive people, look at the stuff they need to look off yeah, and yeah. not do this triage stuff, which can be done by machine learning. Yeah, yeah. He didn't go into too much detail on what kind of algorithm they were using. Mm-hmm. He didn't name it, but didn't call any hyperparameters out. Uh, at the moment, the software itself is not open source. It's not been published to the community, is uh, what he said. But uh, the plan is that it should happen. Nice. So, wait that. But uh, see, it was, it was a nice talk. It was a practical talk. It wasn't really something I needed to learn. It was a nice application of machine learning in a area that we expected to be useful. And uh, it uh, succeeded successfully. Fantastic. Back to you. So my uh, final session for the day was uh, Backup and DR in Hadoop. So this was another session uh, by uh, Lars George, who is a partner and co-founder at OpenCore, which I believe is a consultancy organization around big data. Um, So uh, Jan's already talked about Lars uh, earlier Mm -hmm. for his uh, intro to Hadoop 2. uh, Sorry, practical Hadoop. Um, a practical hate base. H base. Oh. H base. H base. Anyway, um, and uh, this session was also very good uh, in the same sort of lines. Um, obviously, Lars knows very much. Uh, you know what he uh, the the topic areas he's talking about. He's obviously spent a lot of space, a lot of time in this space, and uh, the the best thing that I can say about this particular session is that. Uh, it completely echoes all the things that Jan and I have been talking about for the last, you know, year plus. Um, yeah, all the same sort of messages, uh, and I'm not going to repeat them because I will do Lars a disservice. So what I would instead say is uh, his slides went through, you know, all of the various considerations, um, and uh, you know, definitely look them up. Uh, definitely uh, something. It's definitely a session to watch on on YouTube afterwards. Uh, but even the slides themselves are fairly self-explanatory. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say that would be a great way to start. And then if you want to know more, um, you know, uh, listen to the, the YouTube thing and see how he discusses some of the options. The only thing I would mention, uh, just to, because not everything could be happy and shiny, and I'm grumpy, as is Jan. Jan, no, is, far, Jan is far grumpier than I am, by the and way. Older. Uh, this is also true. Um, Decades, many, many decades. Anyway, centuries even. Uh, But if I was to be a little bit picky, the one thing I would say is that he did an excellent job on calling out a lot of the problems and uh, less. there was a lot less focus on and these are the solutions, the workarounds. He did have some in there and he did, uh, uh, but they were... uh, you know, if I'm honest, they were a little bit more of an afterthought, uh, mm-hmm. a bolt on to the end. Um, I wouldn't say at all that he was uh, doom doom mongering or um, fudding or anything like that. That was definitely not uh, his intent, and uh, that's not the way that the talk was presented. Um, but uh, I think it, it might have been even more valuable to the audience if perhaps uh, more time had been spent on fewer of the topics but actually talking about solutions and workarounds for some of the scenarios Uh, but yeah great session great session to end things up on actually Um, very in depth and uh, yeah thoroughly recommend you go and check it out yeah I wanted to but by the time I got in because I was accosted by a couple of podcast fans thank you very much the room was full and I couldn't join yep once again the full room bites back Oh, once again, it was my only occurrence of that thing, so yeah. I can't complain too much. Yeah. And so I instead, I went to my other last session of the day, being building a large-scale adaptive recommendation engine with Apache Flink and Spark. Mm-hmm. And my first thought was given by two guys from the Hungarian Academy University institution something and my first thought was doing uh, why would you use Flink and a Spark to do a solution because they are pretty much. Well, they're not exactly complementary, mm-hmm. <laughs> but actually what they did was build a machine learning based solution in Spark and Flink and see which of the two was the best fit for what they wanted to do. And the reason they did this is because they wanted to do something quite specific being having a recommendation engine 
And mm-hmm. then for the machine learning aficionados amongst us, not the collaborative kind, but the content-based kind. And having that learn on the fly, online. So while people, every time a person gave a score for a movie he liked, uh, okay. at that moment, relearn or re, uh, recalculate the weights. I wouldn't call it training because yeah, it is training in the end, but it was more of a recalculation of weights to feature sets uh, to make that happen on the fly. And actually did some tests as well where they had a batch uh, a solution for that and an online real-time solution for mm-hmm. that. See which one performed best. And the batch was usually better for accuracy, but took longer to get the results up there. The online one had instantaneous results in your read-learned model, but was less accurate. And when they combined the two, that's when they get the best results. And that was a problem because Spark does not do real-time. Yep. It does micro-batching. Yep. Flink is perfect for streaming. Everything in, in Flink is a stream. Yeah. But there's so, no batch. Well, there's less batch. You, you can do batch as a stream. I mean, you can do everything as, as a stream, <laughs> right? But that was the thing they were looking for, and that's why they did the Spark versus Flink thing. Can we use the primarily batch thing and bolt on some kind of online, which actually does batching behind the scenes? Or should we better go for the real-time streaming thing and fake the batching part of it? Okay. And that's the, the, the correlation they made. So for the uh, machine learning people amongst us, it uh, was a fun thing. It was a fun practical session about a use case that was worked out, comparison, how it worked, had nice graphs in there, where uh, the training time versus result time. So also explained a little bit how their algorithm worked, although it didn't really give us the, the secret sauce. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm I'm kind of expecting this was a kind of uh, master degree project or something, yep. so that must be on uh, found online somewhere. So um, it was a fun session to be honest, and uh, it, it gave me some more appreciation of the differences between Spark and Flink. Because in my mindset, it had kind of settled that Spark was a next. Uh, I'm, I'm going to say evolution. Is it doing a service to both? But being Flink was first, and then Spark was a derivative, derivative of it. But it's not the derivative because it did its own thing a little bit. But they were more samey than they appear to be. Because mm-hmm. at their core, they I, I now understand they're very different. Interesting. So let's look at my notes. Yep, that's all I have. Good things learned. That's why we're here, right? It is indeed. It is indeed. Well. That were all our sessions. It so, were indeed. Uh, let's do a quick musical break. Yep. And when we get back, we will summarize day two and the entire event. Indeed. See you then. Yeah, I really had a ball. Um, uh, yeah, I really had a lot of fun. Uh, there were a lot, there were a lot of very interesting sessions. Uh, some of the sessions I was one of uh, at one of the crash courses uh, uh, about uh, Apache NiFi, and uh, I said I said to one of the guys helping with the crash course, it's not just like the matrix that you flick with your eyes and that you know the know the stuff, but it's very near. They they help you so so it's so great. You go to this summit and you come back with so much knowledge and so much more insight. It's just great. And so much more friends, basically. That's always, that's always, I like summits like this one. I like, I like summits in the old day, in my old world, basically. Uh, yeah, love people that can help you. Uh, and I hope I can help them uh, in the future as well. So, welcome back. As we wind up this epic episode, Episode 40, 4-0, the big 4-0, as our Day 2, Day to Work Summit recap. Um, had a great time. It was a, a great experience once again. Um, if I were to pick out two themes that I think um, you know continued to be very, very strong, I would say the first would be streaming. You know, everything mm-hmm. was talking about streaming, lots and lots of streaming content, Lots of use cases focused around streaming, etc. I think we are in that in the era of streaming, um, not just uh, not just for the big boys, but everybody's able to do it now. And I would also say the second thought would be evolution, not revolution. You know, the, yes, we've got three on the uh, on the cusp, 
But today, what we're dealing with right now, it's a nice, steady, steady, fast uh, evolution of, of everything that's going on. So, yeah, if you haven't been, and if you're just listening to this, pining to attend the summit, then uh, you definitely need to. It's definitely worth your while. Spent two days here learning a lot. Of the quality of the sessions was good. Yep. You do need to look out what sessions you go to because I have some people complaining that sessions were too markety, too, too, too promotionally, but just look at who's giving the, the session because you can pick them out easily. Just be, yeah, do, be critical do, I mean, that. Yeah. You know, listen, listen to our, uh, listen to our, our episode to, to exactly. try things. Exactly. Uh, I would kind of disagree with you about it being same, uh, not same, but uh, not revolutionary. Because I think it's the difference between you being internal at Hortonworks and a lot of the stuff you already heard internally. Mm-hmm. Me being an outsider now, I you said we're on the cusp. I think yeah, you were affli- we're on the cusp, and I've learned a lot of new stuff which I've been waiting for, which were mm-hmm. announced and which were actually explained in very technical detail. Sometimes a bit too technical for me. But I really think uh, this was more. Uh, this was revolutionary for me. I do have a sense that I kept a lot back for San Jose because basically San Jose is the big Hadoop summit, Hortonworks DataWorks summit. That's where the big releases happen, basically. So there, there's still that anticipation is still more coming. Yeah. So it's not we're not over the cusp, but we're definitely not far from the the top there. And I'm actually quite happy I got this uh, introduction at this point. So when the San Jose videos come online, I'll have a nice uh, glide into there. Fantastic. So very happy to have been here. And if uh, come, if uh, everything is possible, I will definitely be back for the next uh, version of this conference. Look forward to it. With that, all I need to do is, before we leave, just one more time mention our raffle, where you can win a free entry ticket to the San Jose Hadoop Summit, which I just told you is the best one in the world. I've been there twice, so I know what I'm talking about. It's been a while, though. So do something to promote us a little bit. Do a tweet. Do something on YouTube. Send uh, Do something on a meetup and send us a picture of it. You'll get free raffle tickets, and we'll uh, select a lucky winner out of that. Also, for people who use the uh, app for the event during the two days, who did something to like or re tweet or re-comment or not so it wasn't really twitter but who did something with our tweets or gave a little bit of a limelight you will also get a raffle ticket for that of course and with that back to you for an exemplary close indeed indeed so with that um please go to www.roaringelephant.org uh, where you can find out more information including a feedback form and the raffle rules that uh, jan's just been talking about uh, you can also follow us on Twitter using the at Hadoopcast tag and contact us by email at podcast at roaringelephant.org with any thoughts, comments, criticisms and other feedback. Until then, my name is Dave. And my name is John. And we looking look forward to talking to you soon, not next Tuesday, as uh, we've done a few back-to-back episodes, so we're going to skip next Tuesday. We'll be back soon. Take care. Thank you.